And if tonight my soul may find her peace in sleep and sink in good oblivion and in the morning wake like a new opened flower, then I have been dipped again in God and new created. I love poetry, and that's the opening of one of my favorite poems, which is called Shadows by D.H. Lawrence. And I just love that image of being dipped again in God. Like, I also love it because it talks profoundly of the beauty of sleep as sweet oblivion, and I love my sleep. But the thought that as I wake each day, I can know that it is a divine gift that I have been dipped again in God. How beautiful, how profound, how hopeful. And I also think that I love that image of being dipped again in God. Because it makes me think of fondue. I don't know how many fans of fondue there are out there. Chocolate fountain, cheese fondue. I mean, I love it in any, in any possible shape or flavor. Um, I love food. And so it's a powerful image of me to think about being dipped again in God. But I don't believe that we are dipped in God like a cheese fondue. Our same selves, like a piece of stale bread coated in some really fancy cheese, something more extravagant, something even a little bit more holy. I think that the kind of transformation that God invites us into is something that goes deeper. That's something that is more transformative, more supernatural. And it's this mysterious and mystical idea that is at the heart of this passage that we're looking at today. So let's look at the story together of Nicodemus. So it begins with Nicodemus the Pharisee coming to visit Jesus at night. Who is Nicodemus? Well, we're told he's a Pharisee. Um, he is a prominent leader. He's one of the religious elite, someone who has centered his life around scripture and law, who spends his time teaching and studying. He's one of uh, the Jewish people's leaders at this time, trying to tell people, you know, how to follow God, how to interpret the scriptures. He's important. He has status. And it's an unusual story because actually most of the encounters that we see between Jesus and an individual in, in the Gospels are with people who are a little bit more normal and a little bit more, you know, less privileged. So this is quite an unusual story in giving us like a really one-to-one -one personal encounter with someone who has some status in that world. Now, he is a Pharisee. And you'll probably know that Jesus isn't famous for having a great relationship with the Pharisees. He clashes with them in all the Gospels, in all kinds of ways. Uh, but in John's Gospel, we haven't really encountered the Pharisees yet. We haven't really seen this conflict start to present itself. And, uh, 
And so it's an interesting moment. We don't really know at this point which way it's going to go. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, presumably because he doesn't want anyone to know that he's there and doesn't want anyone to see him there. And he says to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Now, one of the most interesting words in those little sentences of introduction is the word we. Nicodemus hasn't come off his own back. He hasn't come because he wants to maybe set himself apart from the other people who are suspicious of him to say, everybody else is a, is a little bit worried about what you're doing, but, but, but I know it's for real. I really want to know more. He's not come because he's, you know, on this kind of personal seeking pilgrimage. He says, we know, which suggests he has been sent by a group of people. It's a little bit like backroom politics. A bit of, hey, we're on the same team, right? Let's talk rabbi to rabbi. A little bit of unofficial kind of behind-the-scenes politicking. Maybe he has some kind of request or deal to put to Jesus on behalf of the Pharisees. But we will never know because Jesus hijacks the conversation as he so often does. And he does this in a similar way. There's a, there's a kind of a pattern of the way that Jesus talks to various people, especially in John's gospel, which we're going to see again next week when we look at John 4. And, and it goes like this. Someone says something to Jesus. Jesus responds with something completely weird, seemingly unrelated, a bit obscure. Then the person, we might understand this, misunderstands what Jesus is trying to say. So Jesus follows it up with something even more cryptic and then goes on to try and explain it some more. So Jesus isn't making it easy for anyone. We really have to work quite hard to work out what he is trying to say and to introduce. And I guess, I guess one of the things that Jesus is doing is saying, you see me like this. This is what you see when you meet me. And I'm just going to come right across that because actually what I'm doing is completely out of your box, completely bigger than what you might be expecting or what you are predicting that I'm, that I'm going to do. So Jesus comes in this time with, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Some more obvious responses that Jesus maybe could have offered might have been, thank you, I appreciate the encouragement. Or even, yes, thank you, somebody gets it. I feel like everything I'm saying is just going over everyone's heads right now. I'm so glad that someone can see what I'm trying to do. Or even if he was shrewd, he might say, okay, what is it that you want from me? But instead... He comes across and says something completely different, someone that no one, that Nicodemus is not expecting. He says, no one can really see or understand what I'm doing and what I'm pointing to unless they are born again. Which is something else entirely. 
And absolutely not what the Pharisees are teaching anyone at this point. They're saying mostly to get close to God, you need to work really hard at keeping the law, keeping it in the way that we tell you to and staying holy. And Jesus is going right in with actually, no, I've got something very different to say from what you are teaching everybody. You can't get to God without being born again. And I wonder if you have an internal reaction to the idea of being born again. It's a phrase that gets bandied around in the church and in culture. You might be someone who absolutely identifies as born again. You might be someone who would never really choose to use those words to introduce yourself at a dinner party. Um, But it's a bold idea. And... I guess the first thing to say to to try and make sense of what Jesus is saying here is that we get a little bit lost in translation. So the word that's actually in the the original Greek about that we translate as again actually has three different meanings. One of them is completely or radically. So you must be born completely or radically. The second translation is a second time as we translate it, born again. And the third translation is from God or from above. You must be born from God, or you must be born from above. So whenever we're reading, you must be born again, we're losing something. And we don't know exactly which of those meanings, maybe all of them that Jesus meant, but there's something that maybe we lose by just having one translation in English. But it is a powerful idea, the idea of being able to be born again. And as Jesus says it to Nicodemus, it doesn't feel like he's saying, all those other people over there, wouldn't you agree, all need to be reborn. He seems to be including Nicodemus in it, and people like him. You need to experience this rebirth, Nicodemus. And I wonder if the idea of rebirth appeals to you. The idea of starting over, getting to start at ground zero. You might have heard some dramatic conversion stories in your time of people who reach rock bottom in their lives. Everything has gone wrong. They are full of despair and grief and feel like things cannot get any worse. And they encounter Jesus and they get to start again. And those stories are beautiful and wonderful. And you can understand how someone in that position just longs for that kind of offer to be able to start again. There are times when it appeals to me. It appeals to me at the moment because I'm starting, uh, a, I've been starting a new job in the last month or two and I, and I feel like I don't know what I'm doing and I feel like I'm not very competent and I feel like I make mistakes. And so the idea that Jesus says, you can start again, we can kind of make all things new, we can uh, start again from scratch is so appealing to me. But that's not always true at every moment in my life. I don't always run towards that idea. There's a woman in the next chapter that we'll, we'll, we'll hear about next week in John chapter 4 who um, is pretty much the outcast of her community. She's had seven husbands. It's living with someone she isn't married to. She is, in her community's eyes, unworthy, corrupt, a failure of a woman. And I imagine that she would jump at the chance to be born again, to start over in any sense. 
But it's interesting that she isn't the one that Jesus tells she needs to be born again. It is an old man, a well-respected, successful man who has lived a moral life and hasn't come to Jesus because he is seeking or because he thinks he is lacking anything. It is a bold thing to say to someone near the end of their life. And in the pattern of these encounters, Nicodemus misunderstands what Jesus is saying and says, how can someone be born again when they're old? How can you enter a second time into your mother's womb? Which is maybe a valid interpretation of what Jesus is saying and a very practical question. But it's also not really a very honest or a very intelligent response from someone who spends his life studying scripture. Because the idea of rebirth is all through the Old Testament. It's not a new one. Uh, If someone converts to Judaism in this time, they are described as being reborn. Uh, There are also all kinds of other passages in the Bible, like Ezekiel, where God says, I'm going to need to put a new heart and a new spirit in us. That sense of doing something new internally in us is all through the Bible. So why does Nicodemus kind of go back to this almost silly, practical um, excuse? I don't think it's a failure to understand, but a resistance to what Jesus is saying. And we might be able to understand that. How overwhelming must it be to think about starting over at the end of your life? The theologian Walter Brueggemann said, suggests that what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, you've got to forego your social position, your achievements, your wealth, your reputation. You've got to let go of all the things that make you self-sufficient and that alienate you from the wonder of the gift of God. Because it is a gift, this rebirth, this new creation, this mystical, invisible, but very real new life. A baby can't make itself be born. It's only God who makes this new birth possible. And there's a cost to it, isn't there, that Nicodemus is very aware of and makes it hard for him to understand. But Jesus is really unequivocal. To see what I'm doing, to see God, to be a part of this, if you want to be a part of this, and maybe your coming to me suggests that there is some openness to wanting to be a part of this, then you need to let go enough to allow yourself to be born in a new way. Like a baby, we start this life in vulnerability, in innocence, and dependence. And I think that's probably harder for some of us than it is for others. It's hard for me because I want the world to see me as capable and competent. And to let go of that, to, even, to be seen as someone who is vulnerable, who is dependent, who's not self-sufficient, is something that is difficult for me to learn. We resist. We have always, always resisted. Even though it's this invitation to this wonderful thing, there's such a cost that we're not sure we want to step into it. 
There's even a part of Hosea, which I love, which um, I think Toby's going to throw up on the screen, which, um, where Israel is described as a baby that doesn't want to be born. It says, pain has come to the people like the pain of childbirth, but they are like a child who resists being born. The moment of birth has arrived, but they stay in the womb. Nicodemus is, is maybe in this place of paralysis and hesitation, holding on to what he knows, relying on practical objections to something that feels threatening and bewildering because it's not what he came looking for and it's not what he expected. Second birth is one, says Brueggemann, that moves us out of jadedness, fatigue, cowardice, cynicism, despair. I wonder if any of those things are things you experience. Another theologian, Barclay, said about Nicodemus, if a man does not wish to be reborn, forgive the sexist language, he will deliberately misunderstand what rebirth means. If a man does not wish to be changed, he will deliberately shut his eyes and his mind and his heart to the power which can change him. And aren't there ways in which we do not want to be reborn, don't want to change? Don't we have our favorite habits, our favorite hurts, our favorite hiding places, the familiar and comfortable things that keep us resisting birth into the fullness of what God wants for us? The choice is ours. But maybe you aren't resisting. Maybe you just want to know how. <laughs> when Nicodemus addresses Jesus as a rabbi and as a teacher, it seems like he's getting ready for an intellectual discussion, but Jesus will not let him take him in that direction. Jesus instead kind of takes him off in this strange tangent to something which seems to be about an experience. Something which is about the spirit, which is like the wind, which is invisible. Something that can't be uh, explained in, an, in a natural sense. And in fact, Jesus goes further in this really bold way than just saying, I'm not just a teacher. He, um, in verses 14 and 15, he said, and I don't know if you spotted this or knew what the reference was. It says, uh, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So this is a reference to a passage in Numbers 21. And if you don't know Numbers, you know, like the back of your hand, let me remind you, it's uh, where the Israelites are dying from snake bites. And Moses has to hold up a bronze snake so that he makes a snake out of bronze, casts it in bronze and holds it up physically so that whoever looks at it will be healed from their snake bites. Jesus is basically saying, I'm not just a teacher. If you look at me, you will live. There is something profound and supernatural and far more extraordinary than just being a teacher. Jesus is suggesting to look at him is for this supernatural new life to be possible. But how? How does this happen? 
Jesus can seem like he's getting exasperated with Nicodemus as the passage goes on and he has to explain more and more. But actually, he doesn't just throw his hands up and walk away. He keeps going. He keeps trying to paint this picture of the invitation that he is giving that is just so out of Nicodemus's understanding, out of his um, way of understanding God and relating to God. And he keeps going. And what he comes up with is some of the most beautiful and famous words we now have in the Bible that I'm sure you have heard before. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light. God says he has set into motion this plan and this gift and this possibility and this invitation. And even though it's outside of what we understand to be how life works and what we should want, and how we get there, even though it's almost in a language that we haven't heard before, and we struggle to make sense of, and to bring down to our level, but God is going out of his way to extend this invitation, even to someone at the end of his life, even to someone who might think, I've, you know, I've made all my decisions about how life works, and what's important, and um, how I'm going to live my life, even at this moment, Jesus still speaks to him and says, it's still possible for you. It is absolutely still possible for you. If you can just hear me, God has set into motion a beautiful plan out of his love for us. Not exasperation with us, not disappointment with us for how we're falling short, not despondency at the shape of the world, but to benefit anyone who will accept it, not just a few, to transform the whole of the world. In Revelation 21, it says, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Everything. And Jesus is saying, even you at the end of your life, you can be a part of this if you will allow this new birth, if you will let go of the things that make you, that keep you stuck in the place that you are. And to be a part of the saving and renewing of all things, we have to start by entering it ourselves. There is no other way except going to that place of surrender and dependence personally. Not just for other people around us, but personally. Allowing ourselves to be born again. Finding our world opened up. And you know, Nicodemus's transformation is slow. It doesn't happen then and there. We don't really hear very much about Nicodemus, but he does change. It seems like he does enter in. Uh, at the end of Jesus' life, at the crucifixion, it is Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea who take Jesus' body down from the cross, which is not a thing that an important man would ever have had to do. It was women's work. In this encounter with Nicodemus, I think we are invited, like Nicodemus, to utter a first 
significant, game-changing yes to Jesus and to this rebirth, a new dependence. But it's not just done and dusted there, is it? Because we are invited to a continuing surrender to him as he continues to make us new. Each night we can be dipped again in God in that deep way and new created. If we are willing to enter into that place of need and dependence, that childlike, baby-like place of surrender, that invitation never goes away. Do you need God? Whatever you're going to be doing tomorrow morning, do you need God? Or have you got, just got used to doing it in your own strength? Are we waking each day with an awareness of our need for God to be in us and around us and in our work? We're invited to live in that posture of surrender and gratitude, wonder, dependence, whether we are eight or 80. Just as we cannot see the wind, Jesus says, we cannot see the work of the Spirit, but it is real and it is powerful and it is transformative. And we have the invitation to experience that now, tomorrow morning, the next morning, if we are willing to surrender our self-sufficiency and come to Jesus in our vulnerability and need. We're going to move in just a second into a time um, of prayer and ministry. If, if you're new, if this is your first time here or um, you're new to church, this is a very normal thing for us. We like to make a space to just do some business with God, to pray, to pray for each other, to respond to maybe what God is doing. And who knows what God has been doing amongst us here. Um, if there's anything that you want uh, the prayer team to pray for you, we would love to pray for you. But I wonder, I guess, in light of this passage that we have been looking at, if you feel like you want to respond to that invitation to enter back into that rebirth, that place of needing God, needing that newness, that new creation that he is so willing to do in us, needing it for tomorrow morning, needing it for now. Um, if you'd like to respond to that, then we would especially love to pray that for you.